when we got the message, and I think it was a surprise to most of the Kame staff, that this was it, done. And it came through in a liquidation form of letter that they've gone into liquidation and everything stops. And suddenly you're sitting with 23 of your team that were passionate about building some amazing text, stuff you're incredibly proud of and through the hard work is just vanishes into thin air. And I've never in my life experienced anything like that. When your biggest client, making up over 50% of your revenue and resource allocation goes under, what would you do? Most CEOs would retrench staff, scale back and wait out the rough seas. This is not what Brett Sinclair did at his AI business, Terraflow, when one of South Africa's largest airline businesses liquidated. Brett and his co-founders chose to hold on to their talented team and double down on sales. They were afraid that if they let go of their best talent, their business would never recover. Brett managed to reduce his sales cycle from 18 months to two months through focus and attention to key parts of their sales pipeline. This is an incredible story of resilience and sales which overcame adversity. My name is Nick Haralambus and I don't want to keep you waiting any longer. So remember, it's not over until it's over. Welcome back to It's Not Over. I am sitting with somebody I've known for a very long time, Brett Sinclair, who's got a business that I am not that familiar with that we're going to talk about today. Brett, welcome and how are you? Very good and you. And damn, is it that long? It could be in the 15, 20 year mark. That's, that's yeah. quite scary, Nick. Yeah, it, it's definitely up in at least the 15 year mark. I think sure. that we started to get to know each other when I was working at Vodacom, South Africa's mm. Vodafone, and you were also in that world of mobile startup-y stuff. Mm. And we had some friends in common and in the tech world, and it's very small in South Africa. So yeah. if you're in tech, you know people. <laughs> Actually, okay, Admo, so, Admo, that's yes, exactly it was Admo. what it was. That's right, that was Admo that's right. from yeah, Vodafone that's right. at Admob Days yeah. and Starfish and all those other weird businesses mm. that popped up at that time. And you and I are both stuck in the tech space, and I imagine that you are here to talk about one of those businesses. So to kick things off, a little bit about who you are and then a little bit about yeah. what you do and about the business we're going to talk about now. Yeah, of course. I, I always struggle with who you are because I feel like as an entrepreneur, one keeps on reinventing themselves. And and, yeah. and you want to keep reinventing yourselves in the direction that A, makes sense to oneself and B, adds value to everybody else that you're working with. So what am I now? I like to call myself an AI entrepreneur, although I know absolutely nothing about how to build a model. Okay. What I do do is I spend my time, and I said the word do-do, Oh, I'm so glad time. you said that. I thought I would be childish if I said that, but yeah, you nailed it. You said doo doo. I feel like Come Michael on. Scott in the office when I make jokes like that. <laughs> it, uh, I, I'm laced with dad jokes, so they, they'll come it's out. It's good the for whole this time. podcast. So I, I don't necessarily make build the AI, but my job in industry is to make AI work. And to make it work is the really the hard part. And we see it all over the show. Everyone's trying to get into artificial intelligence somehow. They're hiring data scientists, chief data science officers. And the reality is it lies in getting the data right. It's in getting the cloud architecture right. It's about figuring out how do you make models like machine learning and deep learning and neural nets work and configure them. And so our little business focuses on that. We, we're a group of machine learning and data engineers 
that are passionate about making AI. So Terraflow.ai is the name of the business. We've been around for just under three years. It feels like 30. Every time I look, I'm either getting grayer or I'm getting bald spots or possibly weight, more likely more weight. So yeah, so what's that's your, what we do. Now. What's your current role? You are the CEO and one of the co-founders of Terraflow, correct? So I used to be the CEO when we founded the business. So we founded the business back in 2019, pre-pandemic, thinking we're going to take on the world and build this global business. And kaboom, of course, the pandemic hit and it was really interesting. And I was the CEO during that period of time. And over the last six months, I've handed over the reins to my competent partner, Mike Cowan, who has really taken this business to the next level. He's been absolutely amazing. And then I've got another partner in Pranavan Pillay, and the three of us love it. We work well together. We all have our specializations, and mine really is about how do we find new business? How do we, I think in our game, it's about credibility. How do we build credibility with large enterprises that they trust us with their data, that they trust how we're going to architecture everything correctly? Because often it's Terra what? Terra flow? Huh? Where? What? And this is a new field. It's a, it's, a, it's a new capability. And large organizations have these really challenging data problems and machine learning problems that need to be fixed. So we see ourselves as the plumbers, the electric, electricians of the IT world as we try to stitch us all together and, and, and fix it for large organizations. Awesome. Sounds really interesting. So I'm going to pepper you with some mm -hmm. basic entry-level questions about your business to give us a full picture. I imagine we're talking about Terraflow, right? We're not talking about an older business. That's the mm -hmm. one we're talking about today. Mm -hmm. Great. Great. So tell me, is it VC-backed or bootstrapped? What's VC-backed? Do you have venture capital? Did you raise funding? No. What's that? No? Huh? Okay, good. No. Good. All, so bootstrapped. All, yeah, all bootstrapped. And Okay. They shouldn't call it bootstrap, right? Surely it's called credit card strapped or life saving cash strapped, cash strapped. <laughs> then the three of you built this business to begin with, and did it stay three of you for long? Have you scaled? How mm. many staff? Give me some high level numbers you're comfortable sharing, so we've got mm, some context sure. of how the business is doing now in relation to when you jump us back to the past. Sure. So we started with four of us. So there were four co-founders. We used to call it. The pair of us, Mike and I, are the old farts. And then the brains of the business were Prin and Kamun Kim. So Kamun was the other partner. Two very bright guys, uh, Prin and Kamun and myself, were in another business previous to this that focused very much on the cloud world. And we really did see the opportunity in data and machine learning, and we wanted to play in that game. And so Mike Cowan and I had worked in previous businesses around digital transformation. So we just saw this natural pairing. And, uh, you know, blending old and new experience and talent has worked out really well for us. So started actually, funny enough, with a team, instant team, because we took a bunch of guys from Sciatic, which is the previous business. So we started with a team of seven of us, and we're now sitting at about just over 50 of us. So we've seen some good growth. It's very hard to attract talent. <clears throat> because we look for guys with PhDs and masters and machine learning and AI and that kind of stuff. So very difficult to grow the business. So we focus a lot of our time around how do we retain people? And that's been an interesting journey. How do we put our teams first? How, how do we create this fabulous culture of blending academia and blending that with commercial side of things and driving new innovations and and just being quirky, being a, a, a terabot is 
is kind of what we refer to ourselves. And, and, and how do we solve these really interesting challenges that seem to be literally its own epidemic throughout, throughout the world? Every business suffers these problems. So that's the practical stuff. I imagine the team is mm. distributed. You're not centralized in a single location. Mm. You can hire the best brains from anywhere. So you're relatively remote or hybrid. The The main question before we move into this near-death experience that I want to ask you is how does Terraflow make money? Yeah, so we're a consultancy. And so we'll spend all our time focusing on a particular solution. And we'll go in and we'll go solve the problem, a set price, put on our people, set duration. We put in our own ways of working which allows us to keep control of what's going on. And then hopefully we solve enough big problems for the likes of the banks that they want us to solve more. And we continually go through the problem sets and chew through their backlogs and requirements and make sure that we're offering really, really good value innovation and problem solving, I guess. Oh, so it's, it's project-based fees and or retainer-based fees. And or retainer-based fees, yeah. So you'll build a, a, a squad of some sort and you'll take us on on two weekly sprints and you'll pay by sprint to solve these kind of problems, which is, seems to be mean, the big trend now, right? So people yeah. don't want FTE. They'd, they'd rather pay for packaged outcomes. Mm, which I kind <clears> of like. <throat> I prefer that. But does that mean that your team is relatively elastic? Like you have to scale and cut back depending on the clients and the projects that you have? Or do you have a core 50 that are always 50? Call 50, that's always 50. We don't like using contractors, so we hire okay. everybody permanently, which brings its own challenges. Mm. We run our teams in a swarm format, so I don't okay. know if you're aware about swarm, where it's a very I think thin give us some management. High level there. detail, yeah. Yeah, really, really interesting model. Allows mm. us to move people around quite easily. We, we bring the decision-making right into the team and the squad. And our discipline layer, which is where we work on the quality of our skills, is really a mentorship layer. And so we, we, we tend to take the good parts of management, enhance them, and then really reduce down any form of practical management. We, we, we don't want hierarchy. We don't want politics. It's really about developing the individual, where their career paths go, and we're so vested in our people. We even have a, a personal brand engineer in Simone, wow. and she literally works on people's individual brands, mm -hmm. and we put them through these programs and career roadmaps to get the absolute best out of them because we've got an amazing talent, and we want to retain mm -hmm. this amazing talent. So now, take me into this near-death experience. Set the scene. Mm -hmm. Tell us what's going on in the business, how <clears throat> deep you are into it, who's involved, whatever details you feel are necessary and pertinent to the story. Hey folks, Nick here, and I'm interrupting this fascinating conversation. And I know that that can be irritating, but I wanted to ask you to do me a small favor that will help me in a huge way. Please, right now, stop and go and subscribe to It's Not Over wherever you are listening, whether it's Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google, or YouTube, then leave a rating and review and turn on notifications. Every subscriber and every rating helps me keep this podcast trucking along. Now, back to the knowledge bombs. In the early days, you're going after as much business as you can, and we're trying to define who we are. And I say the early days, this was smack in the middle of the pandemic, which threw a little bit of a curveball to us. Yeah. where we built the business in London. We set up the entity in London. I was going to move to London and then got stuck in Johannesburg. So we pivoted the business, started reaching out to our networks in South Africa, 
and started getting quite a few really interesting businesses in the data space and started working remotely, which suited us very well. And we won a piece of business with a little business called Comair. Lovely business, like stunning people, two fantastic brands. And we lived that journey of the pandemic with them to the point where we took amazing deals with them where we didn't take payments for at least, I think it was from the point of pandemic to when they were flying again. We said, don't pay us. Mm. Don't worry about it. We'll structure these repayment fees. He has a bunch of people that were, you know, always under pressure, losing their jobs, you know, huge pressure on the markets when they did launch, pressure when it comes to the media, always honing down on them with a smaller and smaller and smaller team and having to find cost reductions. So we we actually did something very different there. We went in with the objection or the objective of making AI work. But as we unpacked things, so we realized they needed to move into the cloud. So we did a huge program to move them into GCP, saved them, I think, something like 30, 40 million rands worth of... What's GCP? GCP is Google Cloud. Their CIO is just passionate about Google Cloud. Did an amazing piece of work with with the, the Google guys. Got the entire airline up there. And so you often think how, you know, surely you need on-site for airlines, but no, not really. It really is about getting them into airlines need cost-effective compute. They're trying to squeeze as much margin out of, and you'll be surprised how little margin sits in those tickets. Probably not these days. It's a volume days. game, right? It's a volume game of note. Yeah. And, and it's about the experience that they're trying to offer to to their passengers that becomes really interesting. So they need speed, they need stability, and the cloud seems to offer that. We then found ourselves rebuilding the Kalula app. Like, Nick, what do I know about rebuilding apps? Seriously. But, (laughs) you know, I think both parties looked at each other and thought, well, we trust each other. Let's go for it. Let's try build it. Built it in three months which was fantastic, approved. You can do really great high-scale technology rolled out into, like we used sexy platforms like Kubernetes and built it all out in these microservice architectures. It was just fun. You know, you got to just build the perfect digital platform. Um, But you're technically doing this on consignment. Yes. They're going to pay you later. They're going to pay us later. So that's not the problem, actually. They were very good at paying. Once they got up in the air, being able to pay their their, their vendors was very, very good. I'm sure there were vendors that was very difficult yeah. to get payments from because they were under business administration. But our businesses grew. We did more and more with them. We were doing some great pieces of work with them. We ended up managing their whole IT, most of their dev, all of their data. And we had a team of about 23 people on, on the books. And we were used and- to now. Yeah. Can I ask that at this point, while you're diving deeper into the Comair world, are you mm. also scaling outside of Comair? You're also bringing on new clients that aren't <clears throat> Comair? So those are the lessons you learn while you're going through it. Okay. <laughs> I'm jumping so, the shark. Okay, cool. cool, right. cool, cool, cool. No, okay, no, exactly. Okay. Because so as we're growing, you're we had one or two smaller customers, but your Comair becomes your sizably largest customer. And so we in were very aware of, of time, that right? in a very short period of time. Yeah. And although great pairs, great customer, lovely people, did amazing work with them, you know, very quickly you start finding that they're representing over 50% of what your business is. Yeah. And so your sales cycle in these spaces are anything between six and 18 months. 
So very aware of this, we started snapping into, well, we've got to fix that sales cycle. We've got to start finding new customers fast, big inverted brackets there, within 12 months. Because if something does go wrong, and we'd watched this business recover three or four times from groundings, so it did feel like it was the phoenix that never dies. And so the hard part for our business was D-Day, which was literally three months ago when we got the message. And I think it was a surprise to even the, the most of the Comair staff that this mm. was it, done. And it came through in a liquidation form of letter that they'd gone into liquidation and everything stops. And suddenly you're sitting with 23 of your team that were passionate about building some amazing tech, some amazing cloud ops, SRE practices, stuff you're incredibly proud of and through the hard work is just vanishes into the, the, the kind of thin air. And I've never in my life experienced anything like that because it is those kind of moments where the whole team's looking at you going, well, if Comair can't survive this, what are the chances of Terraflow surviving this? Yeah. Um, and as a management team, we did sit down at the time and, and you kind of awestruck. You, you, you can't believe what's actually happening around the business. And you thought you'd put in enough kind of backstops to make sure like something like this would never happen. You try to put in some cash flow to be able to bank and save money to get some kind of run rate in your business, but you never have enough. And I just remember all three of us sitting down and, and having to make one very tough decision. Are we going to apply what most people apply, which is to reduce headcount and cut corners back and last as long as we can? Or are we going to keep everybody and we're going to go on the offensive and try find as many customers as we possibly can and grow the business as quickly as we possibly can? And so we had a very set timeline of about two months <laughs> where we had to win the business get our teams allocated, and then turn the business around and start getting the cash flow back in. I look back on it and I do kind of think craziest decision we ever made. But the rationale behind it is to find the talent that we've had to find, to find the people, the culture. And if we had to redo this, the chances of finding that amount of talent again, almost zero. So we... We stuck to our dangerous, kind of core dangerous logic, though, right? Very dangerous, dangerous logic right? because that's the that's the kind of spiral that gets you to the point where you have no money, you've left your team with no opportunities, you've given them no notice, you have no payouts to pay them, and you're fucked. <clears throat> so Correct. it sounds ballsy. It sounds like you're you're standing by your team, but every experience in me says, Brett, that was really fucking ridiculous. It was ridiculous <laughs> at the time. <laughs> We were going, we can do this. We know we can do Cowboys. it. Cowboys. Yeah. Cowboy, right? And and we kind of thought to ourselves, you know, like we could do the easy option because if we were to do the easy option, you literally are impacting 50% of your business and 50% of your yeah. staff. Yeah. And I know like it, like I've been through firing and retrenchment processes and had to lead some of those. And it is possibly the worst experience. Maybe it was us being a little bit chicken, having to sit down in front of, say, 23 people and walk yeah. them through that process just so that we survive. Hindsight now, glad we did it because everyone on the bench it worked out. is, <laughs> it worked out, right? <laughs> it That's worked great. out. 
And I, yeah. I think that the, the story, well, worked out. We've got to now, you know, there's a repercussion now. Now we've got to rebuild those cash reserves, got to yeah. rebuild the platforms, got to rebuild, 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 rebuild. Still lots yeah. to go through, but we're out of the red at the moment. And So that makes me want to ask you, what what was the business situation at that time? So you, you kind of, I mean, everybody in the country knew that Kalula was kind of not doing well, that BA was also kind of not doing well. You guys are pretty committed. 50% of your revenue is there, 23 of your staff. Your sales cycle is six to 18 months. And how much cash flow, what's your runway like? I mean, have you been frugal founders and saved as much as you were earning? And do you have runway at this point to go, you know what, we can risk this? I don't think we had some runway. The runway is not the frugal, like as an entrepreneur, you want to build 12 months, one year's worth of runway, right? That's your dream situation. But when you start building that in, your margins are just not competitive. And and so what we did have, and I like I think it was the saving grace of of the business. And I think a lot of entrepreneurs don't really think about this, was a pipeline. And the value of a pipeline is what kind of saved our horses. And and when I mean a pipeline, it's an incredibly well-defined, we knew exactly where we were with a number of different customers, but articulated all the way through. So the approach we took to it, we, we called it flushing our pipeline. And so we took everything that was sitting at a certain level in our pipeline. And by flushing it, you're going hard. So we went in hard with crazy deals, you know, where it's um, cash up front deals, but we slash the cost by 30%. It's, you know, there's existing squads that can build X, Y, and Z for you, you know, grab it up now while we've got that kind of availability and skill, and then we structured these interesting repayment cycles. The issue with the flush is you want to be pulling the deals much lower down in your sales pipeline. So when you're a bit more secure, the teams know exactly what's happening, you'd be able to negotiate on a much stronger foot. And what the flush does is you're flushing everything that is below a certain area. And by coming in too desperate, you can lose quite a bit of business. So that is the risk. How many people were going to take up on it and how many people would we spook off? And I think the the value of a pipeline is often completely misunderstood. And, and so a lot of businesses will get, think a pipeline is one or two customers that they've been working on. A pipeline is not that. A pipeline is from the very first coffee that you've had. It's the validation meeting, it's whether you've been able to price something or not being able to price something and tracking exactly where those relationships are and understanding where those relationships are sitting in within these large organizations, maturing that. And so within that pipeline, I reckon we had about 12 months worth of maturity. So we had already flushed out some of the guys to just, you know, our pipelines work, right? They just get narrower and narrower as you go down the process of qualifying out. By concentrating on having this, I think, a phenomenal pipeline. It's not phenomenal now, the way, by the way. <laughs> it's, it's, it's empty. Um, as the result of a flushing, right? As the result of a flushing. And okay. so it's going to be interesting to see what those repercussions are. Because now we're mm. flat out. Now, now we're hiring salespeople. Mm. More so than engineers. Why? Because we need to fill that pipeline as quickly as we can, knowing full well that there's a roll down. 
of qualifying out all the business to get to what the real business is again. And I wonder sometimes if entrepreneurs put that much effort into your sales pipelines um, an investment. Like salespeople are as expensive as engineers. They're, they're not the people who just want to work on com. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You, you need high-end executives. Yeah, the deep sales <clears throat> executives, they actually build your business for you. They're not hitmen. Mm. Mm. There's there's a lot to unpack here. So I want to pause mm. you there and I'm sure we'll progress back to where you are now. Mm. But jumping back, was there any tension in you and your partners as the choice occurred to build the Kalula app? I mean, it's not core mm. to your business. It's not what your engineers are trained for, mm. but you did this anyways. You kind of made the choice to diversify what you do to get your hooks into a customer deeper. Looking back, was that a mistake? Or distraction? Mm. Shoo. Nick, hey? Pick on the sore point here, hey? It's like, yeah. I, it's like I've done this before. Mm. <laughs> it's like you've done this before. <laughs> but I mean, like, to me, no, and no, this isn't an point. obvious question for everybody, but for me, you've spent the last 25 minutes telling me that you're an AI business, and then the one thing you told me you did was rebuild an app. Crazy, right? So yeah. I think we said no to Afshan, who's their CIO, about nine times, <laughs> literally said no. And so like Mike and I, we come from a background where we've rebuilt yep. businesses, apps and all that kind of stuff. And we deeply understand what it takes. So we were very serious about saying no. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But, and you, you and I both know that there's no such thing as quickly rebuild an app. It doesn't, <laughs> no it doesn't exist. Yeah. You've got to build scale into it. You've got to build security. Yeah. You've got to harden Platforms, the production environments. Oh your CICD environments. And that's, that's what we ended horrible. up building. And it's it's horrible. And you've got to get your user experience. So what we decided that got all three of us over the line, all three of us deep down inside kind of wanted to do something like that, but it needed to be in line with your business. And I'm sure you probably heard from all the guys, right? It's focus, 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 focus. Just focus. Just don't do any mm-hmm. diversions. Focus. And this was a diversion of all magnitudes. And yeah. So what did we end up doing? We decided, well, let's you let's test what we've been wanting to test, which was AI in the form of a UX. So what we often saw was how AI is being exposed into the real world and how that's being consumed. And mm. it either happens through, well, it's a dashboard or it's through an API, and it's just terrible. It's really terrible. And so mm. we had often talked and debated about well, if we had control of a user experience, whether it's through notifications and being able to hyper-personalize a notification, say, of a passenger on where their journey is to nudge them in the right space, but the right way, not intrusively, that adds value to the experience, then that would be worth it. And so we took that as a foundation and said, okay, let's test this AI UX and what we did is we went to the max, right? We said, okay, well, then let's build that as a, a business unit. Let's put that in our marketing collateral. Let's build out the site. Let's build the capability. If we're going to build it like that, well, what would we hire? Well, we're going to hire the best possible UX designer that we that we can find. And, and we found Arnold, who's just insane. The guy's brain is mm. out there. Expensive, mm. but amazing. And so we invested in that arm as much as we would in data engineering and ML engineering. And we've we've got a cloud competency because you've got to build it on the cloud. So you need this ability to 
manage, deploy, replicate, all that kind of stuff. And so we took that same approach. That's how we did well. The, 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 the front-end designers using Flutter, because it made sense to us to be effective mm. and efficient about code, building everything on, on you know, I can't remember the backends that we built, Firebase and the Firebase analytics tools and putting all the monitoring in place. Amazing. So we figured we'd go at it in the same way we'd build our own business. The downside, mm. we never got to sell it again, which is quite interesting. interesting. So we yeah. ended up with this team that doing the most amazing job, but we're struggling to sell it. And I say it sounds easy, right? Sell the ability to sell apps. Well, mm. it's not because mm. it's such a saturated, commoditized market. So when you're coming in, you're seeing guys going, yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll build an app for 20,000 rand. Yeah, and, and going, it's no yeah. code, and it's bullshit, and it's all sorts of responsive crap that isn't actually customized and unique. And then it's a race to the bottom, and you've got the best minds working on it, and you can't race to the bottom. And we yeah. can't race to the bottom. Very yeah. interesting. We still have that team. We're still Amazing. building really interesting things, and we've got we're working on a really sexy project at the moment around disease control with, with some guys in the UK and the government here. And so that is where it's more leaning back into our core competency. How do we okay. take design and front end into the world of machine learning? And, and that makes sense to us. But again, got to get better at selling it. Mm. It's, you're only as good as what you can sell consistently. It's, I feel like there should be an updated version of if a tree falls in the forest, if a developer builds an app and nobody buys it or uses it, did he actually build an app? No. Funny. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's a joke, but not really, right? Mm. I know so many mm. devs who are like, oh, yeah, I've built this app. Okay. How many users do you have? 10. I'm sorry. Then you didn't build an app. It's, it's yeah. not something worth. Yeah. yeah. Moving on. The liquidation process with Comair. Mm. This is probably not something that a lot of my listeners and none of my guests have spoken about. But what was that process like for you as a supplier who is now needing to get paid? Did you get paid and how difficult was it to get paid? And were you at the top or the bottom of the list of liquidation being owed to you? Mm. Mm. So it, it was the Kalula ticket holders. <laughs> Way <laughs> down Way all the suppliers. At the bottom, suppliers. So how the process works is... A lot of it's dependent on, they've got to liquidate the assets, right? So they've got to get out there. By that, you mean like sell planes? Sell the planes. What else? Sell Leases. what else? All those okay. different training facilities, okay. all that kind of stuff that okay. they have so they can raise some funding. Then they'll go back to the creditors. We're okay. talking probably a two, three-year process of wow. just getting through that to see a sense on the dollar. So and are we looking for at you, it that's probably 2025. Yeah. Yeah, it's going to be a long time from now. So we, we kind of written off. The you write it off, yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay, and that I think makes that's sense. the reality. And you've got yeah. to go in there knowing that. You can put all the contracts in the yeah. world to make it happen. You can put all the defense mechanisms in the world. You can get your lawyers to fight it all. But there's a reality to the liquidation process. Yeah. And it's a hard yeah. one. Yeah, you're right. It's the sensible thing is to not depend on that money for cash flow because it will never come. And if it does come, it's Correct. gravy and it's profit share for shareholders and you move on. Something you said that is interesting to me that I know for a fact that most entrepreneurs in their first five years don't give a shit about is mm. pipeline, pipeline function, pipeline efficiency, actually understanding what a real pipeline is. Zero to one mm. entrepreneurs, their pipeline is the next client in front of them. 
That's how it works. Whatever's going to bring me cash flow to make it work. So who in your business, and I have a sense it's you, was the pipeline obsessed person so early on in the business? Because seriously, I've done this myself. B2B pipelines, I keep them in my head and it's my network and I manage them. You seem to have had a very clear process of conditions of your pipeline, turning leads into whatever, like, why did you decide to do that? So from word go, we wanted to scale the business. We wanted to break the model of what it takes to be a consultant and 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 the speed by which we could scale the business. So okay. we knew that selling to business was difficult. I come out of that world. Mike comes out of that world. So a couple of things. A, to engage with the business, very difficult. So you've got to understand where you're engaging, how you're engaging. And it's so complex that you need to track exactly who you've spoken to, where they sit, how they sit there. Because it's not just one person that will bring you into, for instance, a, a bank. It is a multitude of people, sideways, downwards, up, wherever. And you've mm -hmm. got to engage and tell your story right at the right level, at the right way that they want to hear it. You've got to understand their problem. You've got to understand budgets. So I'm passionate about a word called bent, but authority needs and timing if you don't have that that's first step that's qualifying <laughs> get out so in our sales team we talk about being that hot person in the bar whether you're a man or a woman the hot person never is desperate and is very good at saying no so how do you position yourselves as the vendor as the person selling to be that you've got to be confident you've got to know your data and so we took that approach and so very early we formalized a very detailed very analytical driven pipeline and we're testing it continuously. The hard wow. part is mm. the lead generation. The hard part of getting in front of people, it, it's easier in South Africa because we have a network and people know about you and you have credibility. But when you enter a market and I'm loving what we're doing in, in the UK, it's and I'm loving what you're doing in the UK, Nick, it Thank is you. about credibility. You've got to get in front of an audience, people got to build your personal brand. You've got to build your personal brand before you build your business brand because it's going to be you yep. that's going to drive your business brand, especially in the first two, three years of any region that you're entering. And so we're trying to understand that. And again, we use AI and machine learning. We've done outbound campaigns to the millions. I feel terrible, like, oh, that's not the world I want to operate in. But we proved it doesn't work. <laughs> so don't, don't believe any guy that does outbound. It doesn't. We've used every agency. We've spent the money to do it. It doesn't work. You have yours tried it, right? I've done the fucking same. Every agency under the sun will tell you just spam people on LinkedIn. They'll respond. Just get a database of 10,000 and email them. They'll respond. Just do the cold email trails where you send three emails over three weeks. They'll respond. Doesn't work. I have personally spent tons of money trying to get that to yep. work. It doesn't work. Not doesn't for B2B. Work. Specifically. Not for B2B. This, this, it's network, it's connections, it's word of mouth, it's proving that your work is good and having other people tell people that it's good, so many other ways. Correct. And that takes time. And so you've got to look at those elements that build up a B2B relationship all around credibility. So what we're looking at is, okay, well, if it's around credibility, how do we shorten that time? Let's not do it in okay. 10 years. Let's do it in five years. How do we do that? How do we leverage our sales teams? There's three of us as founders. How do we get out there? How do we scale content? How do we, we don't want to just connect to people. And again, I've done this in a number of lifetimes where 
you know, even when it was hot to do it, where you could connect to somebody and immediately get a coffee and then have a chat to them. What I wasn't measuring at the time was the quality of that lead that converted lower down in the pipeline was awful. Yeah, you spend three hours uh, buttering up a lead that actually has none of your band. None of the band, right? Yeah. And so like sales is a passion of ours. Now our passion right now is lead generation. And and that lead generation, we've actually got a program internally. I can't believe I'm telling you about it. But anyway, it's called Reservoir Dogs. Okay. And I love it because of that image where you got the guys, yeah. Mr. Brown, Mr. Pink, whatever, just All walking down, yeah. you know. And yeah. it's so old school. And we're so tired of trying to run a digital business and a remote business digitally that we've gone – Fuck that. We're going old school. We want to meet people. We want to touch people. We want to talk to people. Love that. We want to smell people. <laughs> yeah, I love it. I buy it. I think he's he maybe he's a friend of yours. I'm not sure. Justin mm-hmm. Spratt, mm-hmm. one of the smartest yeah, people I know. He, he's got a very clear idea on this that I'm going to steal from him. But mm-hmm. initial meetings can happen over Zoom, but big deals close in person. 1,000%, right? Yeah. You, you, you can't... You, uh, it's you being on the ground, your people being on the ground. People like people. People want to do yeah. business with people. You, you, yeah. you can't get away from that. 100%, which is a good segue, speaking of sales and cycles, into mm. something that is quite shocking for me. You said that your sales cycle top end is 18 months, which I buy. Every mm. business that I've done that's B2B, 6 to 18 months is very standard. How on earth could you possibly shrink that sales cycle by nine times? Because As in you, during you, the you COVID? Had, yeah, yeah, during this intense period, you had to flush your pipeline. And I want you to mm. go into a little bit more detail on how you do an 18-month to two-month turnaround. Like you mm. nurturing leads that should close in 18 months. And to save your business, I'm sure my listeners want to know how you shrink that from 18 to two months. I can tell you how you can shrink it from 18 to six months. We didn't shrink it from 18 to two months. We took everything that was going to close in the next six months below. And we said, let's shrink that to one month because we had to close that within that month because we needed to land the work, be onboarded and get a month's worth of revenue in. And then the next month and then the the next month. So, that's why we Genius. literally went down the pipeline. We picked everything that was, we had at least put in a statement of work. So we'd put in a proposal. That doesn't guarantee it. You know, sometimes you put in 10, 20 proposals, and then you've got to work those proposals. That could still take six months of work, of engaging mm-hmm. with the business, presenting throughout the business, getting to the procurement teams, all that kind of work. So we managed to take that last six months and get it down to a month. And the way we did Amazing. that was, by coming to the market with very, very creative deals. And so <clears throat> I don't mean creative deals in the South African term. I mean creative deals that make your client think differently about how they can consume your services. And so we, we had one of our clients that we won the business, still the early stages of it, large medical aid, so we'll, I can't announce names yet. But they got really excited that we packaged four to five different ways of how to structure the deal commercially. And so those ways kind of went from, oh, we really like money up front or to, oh, we'll take the the money right at the end, but oh, it comes with a serious cherry on top, right? And so you're structuring payment plans, the price of things, 
the interest rate that you apply to these payment plans, discounting deeply but getting a return at a later stage, and doing these really interesting deal structures. Because most enterprise are used to being dictated to by their vendors. This is how you'll work. You'll, we'll charge you per hour. You will take this bunch of services. You'll take our recommendation on technology and you'll get the bill from us and you'll pay it at this stage. And so suddenly our proposal became this topic of entertainment between all the Exco members where they spent a week all getting together, starting to think about what is the impact on each of these different commercial deals and what does it mean to them versus against us? And what's quite interesting is they ended up settling with a deal that benefit both parties. It wasn't all about them. And so we put that there. It was all about us, a set that was about both, and then a set that was all about them. And it was quite interesting. Your customer wants I'm a win-win. I'm blown away. I'm blown away at how smart this is. I, like, there's, there's something so uniquely significant about this that mm. maybe, I mean, you must know, but maybe you don't talk about often enough and maybe you should, but... The thing that I know for certain that most salespeople try to do is fit in. Mm. They don't want to be the outlier. They don't want to, oh, I can't price this differently because the company isn't used to that structure. I can't offer them this because the person I'm dealing with has never seen this before. I have to offer what everybody else is offering. And what you're saying is actually mm. completely counter to that narrative that mm. if you want to stand out, then you should offer them something different. And weighted towards value for them or value for you or value for both. Correct. And so it's genius. As a salesman, you, it's hard, right? But I find the best salespeople know how to say no. Yeah. Ah, oh, yeah. Love it. My, my favorite words, my favorite statement in my experience of sales in the past is if you get a maybe, it's a no. Yeah. Maybe it's a no. Maybe it's a no. Walk yeah. away and find the yes. Yeah. Yeah. You know the um, most such powerful poignant sales stuff. The most mm. powerful sales technique is to walk away. Yeah. Is to go, well, no, I, I, we, we can't see the way this deal's going to land. I can't see us adding value. It just helps them identify with that hot person at the bar. Wait, 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 wait. Yeah. I do, I, I do want to spend some time and buy you a drink. And, I love and, that perspective. Yeah. Actually, I, I appreciate that smart. feedback, Nick, because yeah. what's important for us is we're a small business in this global landscape. And so we always talk about how do we be different? It's not about just your branding and your positioning. It's, it's, and your culture that those are cultures really important. Transparency is really important, but how do you truly, truly be different in a market? And yeah. we struggle with that question the whole time. We keep trying new things. I is think it the fact too that different? You, you, I, yeah, and I think the fact that you even struggle with that question is more than most. Mm. Most people don't even bother struggling with that question. And that is what's going to separate businesses. And having the guts, I think, Brett, the other thing is the experience and the guts to know when to pull that trigger. First time entrepreneurs would not have the guts to make the decisions you guys made. It's, it's just the truth, right? With less experience as a salesperson, you don't know how hard to push your clients or when to walk away so that you know that they come back. These things really matter. And again, that's why I have people like you on the show, because you're helping me leapfrog 10 years of experience that I maybe don't have. So super insightful. And that's why I say, if you didn't realize, I think you should, that that step, pulling that trigger is just so mm. brutally intense and it worked for you, which is fortunate, but... 
to segue into my next question, you do have the salary of 23 people sitting on your head now. You've got cash flow that doesn't really exist. You've got a pipeline that you aren't sure is going to convert. So how do you and your co-founders manage, one, the internal culture of the business, and two, you can answer these separately, mm. your own mental health in mm. this whole process? Mm. So it's, I listened to one of your podcasts, you were talking about the imposter syndrome. And we talk about that a lot in our business, because we have a lot of very, very bright people who feel that they don't deserve to be there. And so my view on imposter syndrome is, well, someone's decided that you're not the imposter. And, and we're going to give you a chance to not be the imposter that you think that you are. So therefore, please do not suffer from the syndrome. <laughs> yeah. yeah, trust me. It's, it's a good observation. Yeah, it's it, it's so it's important. And so, like, yeah. it does feel like as the entrepreneur, sometimes you 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 are that imposter because you go, we're confident that we will get the business. And mm-hmm. is it because we're not asking ourselves those deeper, deeper truths? because we want to hold our mental state of mind as the entrepreneurs in control. I think I'm lucky in that I actually have two amazing partners where we load balance the pressure. We load balance the emotions that come with it. We load balance the rest. Said like a true cloud AI entrepreneur, eh? we load balance. We load, load balance. balance. Just Especially. send the load to the server that needs the load the most, and then it's fine. That's great. <laughs> we take a break where you're tired, right? <laughs> nice. Because you're right. It, it it's a good way you. to look at it, though. It's a good, and this is why you have co-founders. Yeah, I, I, I'd hate to be an entrepreneur by myself. I, do, I don't think I can yeah. do it. I, I am. I don't envy. I respect the guys who do it yeah. by themselves because. The toll, the toll is real. It has yeah. a real effect on your body and your emotional state, uh, on your state, on your emotional state. But let's go back to my staff. We yeah. knew that the guys who were on the Kame team, they're going to have their CVs out there, right? And two people left as a result of it because okay. the guys are talented. And, yeah. and so you've got to deal with that negativity because a lot of the guys were on the bench. And, and so how do we fill the time? And so you want to feel valuable. You don't want to feel like you're just filling time. So we moved into, well, let's increase our certification. Let, let, let's get our certifications and our status with Google and AWS wow. up to as high as we can globally with the guys. So giving the guys the opportunity to study, to get their certs in, to get all that kind of stuff, it's mentally stimulating. And what it does, it drives real business value. So a lot of guys have taken on, and we've seen this flurry of activity when it comes to certifications. And then they could see any opportunity that we got on other projects. We always, we went to our customers that we already had. We said to them, we have spare capacity. We're going to give you staff. We're not going to bill you for it. They are available, but you need the help. And, you know, we just want our staff working. And it's amazing. Our customers came to the party as well. They were like, fine, no problem. <laughs> Give me some stuff. But they understood what a what smart it, way to leverage us, that right? extra. Yeah, that's so smart, man. Because there's, there's two parts to this problem of hunting new businesses. It's easy to neglect your existing customers. 
And this is a very intelligent way to make them feel valued, make your staff feel useful and valued, and not lose the staff you've worked really hard to gain. Correct. And so yeah, we've done quite a bit of analysis, like looking internally at our business, our business coach's old spilly. So he, nice. he, ha- he hammers us on like, you know, just get your vision right, you know, understand what you want to do. And, and so we do a lot of this kind of deep diving on, on, on where we want to go with the mm. business. And previously we used to look at the business and go, oh, we want to grow somewhere over there. Just foot on the accelerator, go, go, go as much as we can. But in the last three months, we've seriously looked at the business and gone, okay, in five years, can we grow to 500 people? And what would it take? How many new customers would we realistically have to win? And turns out we only have to win three or four customers a year. But where we have to win is internally. We have to grow those customers. And we have to continually offer value and grow the value within those customers. That's strategically key. So now suddenly from going, you know, I've got to focus on sales, new sales, new sales. We've just doubled down on our account management capability. So we know that if we've got a happy team, we've got a happy customer. And so how do we keep making sure that that customer is happy? And I think it's a very undervalued proposition, especially when you're an entrepreneur, because you're only thinking new, new, new. Why? It's my brand out there. More people know about us. Let's go new, 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 new. We have snapped into, I think we realized at Incomair, we did such a good job on the account management. Mm. And now we're realizing as we've got all these, we've got lots of banks now, we have to put that kind of effort there. And that's where we're going to grow our business. Yeah, I mean, what's interesting is as a B2B entrepreneur, it's maybe not as prevalent a statement as a D2C, direct-to-consumer or Mm e-commerce entrepreneurs who understand very, very intimately that it is literally 10 times cheaper to retain a customer than to acquire one. Mm. Like, that's the game. And if you're listening to this and you're trying to exclusively acquire new customers at the cost of your existing customer base, you're building a business that doesn't exist. Like, that's not sustainable. It's not sustainable. It's, it's, you know, well, you've seen it in the ad spend world, right? You, the cost, you can directly correlate that cost of advertising I mean, and revenue to Funny track. you say that. That's actually how you and I really got mm. closer is that at one point at Vodacom, mm. my division was one of the biggest spenders on the continent in ad mm. revenue. Mm. And we would eventually just burn through our money because those users weren't staying. Correct. And you can only acquire a user once. Like, Correct. Can't go back and ask them to come again, right? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And if you do, you're doubling your money on the same person and then your margin is gone. So it's it's such, there's so many things in your story that I'm really glad we've spoken that you Mm. highlight these very painfully obvious things in hindsight once you've been through the shitstorm. There we go. So, I mean, I hate the cliche, right? There's there's always huge value in in a crisis. And and that's kind of how we had to look at it was... We've got a massive crisis on our hands. We've always mm. been aware that it could happen, but you never dream that a massive market player would go down like that and so quickly. You always think, mm. oh, it'll happen over a couple of months. We'll get the indications and we can plan our way out of it. But I actually think as an entrepreneur, you have to go through crises. And maybe that's what your show is really turning to be about. If if you're going to survive, not even be successful, survive. Just survive. Mm-hmm. note that it's going through some serious crises to get there. Yeah, it's impossible to be successful without experiencing failure in some way, some small way. And maybe you haven't come across this. I mean, you probably have, but on this show, I talk about it a lot. It's called post-traumatic growth, PTG. Mm. 
Mm. It is a psychological state that has been proven in research that 85% of people who experience a trauma report being a better version of themselves after that trauma. Mm. I apply that theory to businesses too. Businesses that survive catastrophic events are stronger because of them, not in spite of them. Yeah, love that. I definitely can say that holds true, Nick, because you learn so many lessons. And I guess it's about your culture as well. Are you willing to take those lessons and learn from it? Because if you're not, I think you're being very arrogant. It'll never happen again. Like We, we could take that or, pose, right? Oh, no, it wasn't me. It wasn't me. It was yeah. external. It were variables that I couldn't control. There's nothing to learn here. Yes, of course. But everybody in the world also experienced that trauma. And mm. COVID is one of the first times in our lifetime in a generation where you can't exclusively use that as your own excuse. Mm, yeah. It wasn't just you. There were businesses yeah. that survived in this mess, in yeah. all of this trauma. Why didn't yours? It was probably you. Correct. And it, yeah. it, it, it exposed those areas mm. where you just weren't willing to fix. And I think yeah. in today's world, you've got to be continuously looking at your business, figuring out where that weakness is. And I, remember, I used to be a project manager many, many, many years back in the tech space. Yeah. And I spent so much time trying to figure out risk because project management is risk. And it's a dull, laborious, boring thing to do. Oh, what what could go wrong here? It's probably Mm. the same things that always do. No, identify it, but then go fix it. Remove Mm. it so you get that risk out of your Mm. business, right? Get it out. I mean, we're going Mm. so far now. We're we're deploying ISO 27002 or whatever, Uh 27001 which is a mm. massive data compliancy that only large organizations do. Why? Yeah. Because what happens if <laughs> yeah. Yeah. some crisis happens with our clients that we need to be there to be able to support? Or to... Mm. So you, you really start taking compliance a little bit more seriously as an entrepreneur. Mm. It's painful, difficult pull to swallow. Mm. It's an overhead you don't want to be spending. But you start I've doing those kind of things, right? Just yeah. get it done and do it well. Be in the frame mind of the, the frame of the mindset that, that that you're going to do your best. Be the best yeah. at governance that you possibly can be. <laughs> yeah. Brett, there were so many valuable nuggets in this conversation. I can't thank you enough for being here. So the final thing I'll ask you is where can people find you, follow you, be working for you, hire you, give them everything yeah. you want to give them. The floor is yours. Awesome. Thanks, Pat. We're actually about to kick off a campaign, 303, 30 people in three months. So we are are like hiring like crazy. We're looking for data engineers, cloud architects, free engineers, but modern microservice DevOps, full stack people. Please reach out to me, terraflow.ai. Got everything there. Campaign kicks off. We're really excited. We're trying to disrupt the world of recruiting. 30 people in three months. Not sure how we're going to do that. So let's let's see how that goes. So if anyone is that would be fantastic thanks amazing Brett uh, thank you for your time and I'm so glad that for you and Terraflow it's not over thanks bud